Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. As mentioned last week, this week we're playing part two of my interview with author, former tech lawyer, and former CIA operative Barry Eisler. Uh, The interview was as part of a launch event for his new book, The God's Eye View, and was at a lovely event put on by the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco, uh, and the event was in celebration of the book launch for Barry's new book. Once again, you can see the video of that interview on the Commonwealth Club's YouTube channel and learn more about their other events at commonwealthclub.org. Last week, the conversation focused almost exclusively on the state of the intelligence community and the surveillance state. This half of the interview was a bit more varied, and we touched on a number of different subjects. Uh, There's still a bit more on the surveillance state, but then we discussed the state of the publishing industry as well, and self-publishing, some about the tech industry as well. We also talk about some of Barry's other books, mainly focusing on the John Rain series, which is what made Barry famous, and Barry actually tells a wonderful and funny story about meeting and getting to hang out with Keanu Reeves, who is attached to a possible TV project to play John Rain. Uh, It's another fun discussion with Barry, and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for listening and for sharing the podcast with others. We've been getting lots of really great feedback lately and ideas for future podcasts. And with that, we now go on to part two of my interview with Barry Eisler. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Um, so, uh, quick question. Do you know if Ed Snowden has read the book? I don't know. Um, I really tried to get it to him, and uh, I was hoping for a blurb, selfishly, I admit. <laughs> he does have more important things to do than blurb my book, I will acknowledge that. <laughs> well, what are you talking about? He's hanging out, he's got nothing to do. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, uh, no, so far nothing's really come. Uh, but, you know, it's not too late for a tweet, so, Ed Snowden, <laughs> if you're listening to us tonight, and who knows, you may be. Go ahead and tweet it out, man. <laughs> <laughs> we can hope. We can hope. Um, so here's a good question that sort of came up. I mean, we talked, you talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, sort of how things have reacted. And you mentioned a couple of the cases that have sort of gone against the NSA, but it's yeah. been somewhat limited. There have been a couple of cases that have gone their, their way. Um, you were a lawyer, so you have sort of legal experience. Uh, and so someone was asking... You know, do you think that the judiciary system actually, you know, will be able to do anything, or you know, do will, will they will they have a role in sort of deciding the fate of uh, American surveillance? It's a good question, um, vital question. It does seem to me that that the judiciary has been co-opted 
by executive fear-mongering on things like, for example, the state secrets privilege, if you know anything about this, it's where it's, it's just metastasized. It used to be that the, somebody would sue the government for some illegal action, and the government would say, hey, um, we can't talk about that in open court. It would reveal secrets, and then the court would say, okay, come, the judge would say, come back in my chamber. We'll, we'll discuss that aspect of the case in private, and I'll make some sort of ruling on whether we need to keep that secret or whether we don't. But <clears throat> that uh, doctrine has now been expanded to mean that the government just goes into court and, say, and says the case involves secrets, you have to throw it out, the whole thing. So what happens is that citizens can't get their day in court no matter how much the government has been violating their rights um, <clears throat> because uh, the government just, just claims that some secrets are involved, which if you think about it just on a policy level is crazy. I mean, it certainly would seem to incentivize the government to just say, oh, there are secrets, there are secrets, it's Miller time. Secrets. You know, it's like that scene like in uh, Austin Powers with Dr. Dr. was like, zip it, zip it, <laughs> zip it, Scotty. And you're like, wait, wait, it's about zip it. So uh, people don't get to litigate these things um, because of that doctrine. Uh, that is definitely a concern. I think it's just an attitude. And it's surprising because I think the founders had, had anticipated that human nature would make the three branches of government really, four if you include the press, would make uh, the branches of government really jealous of their prerogatives and, and fight to protect them. And wow, I mean, I don't know, I would have thought so too. I guess I was wrong about human nature because the judiciary has just rolled over on its back and given it up to the executive on so much of this stuff. Congress too, actually, when you consider things like um, uh, its power to declare war and enforce the war powers resolution and things like that. Um, there is another thing that's called a court, but it isn't. And this is also, again, you know, respect to the people who decided to call the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance, surveillance um, Administrative Body a court. That was genius <laughs> because everybody thinks it's a court now. And when Obama makes a speech, he can say, look, I want you to know these programs have been blessed by all three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and, and the courts too. And it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, man. You, you call that thing a court, but there's nothing court-like about it. I mean, it does have some retired judges on it, but other than that, if you think about it, it's, um, this is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. It's, it's um, proceedings are conducted in secret. There's no judicial review. Uh, there is no adversarial party in the courtroom representing the other side of the case. I mean, it's just not a court. You can call this a lot of things. It's, to me, it's more like um, the Office of Professional Responsibility or something in the Justice Department. It's, it's an executive uh, advisory body, but calling it a court was genius. And, uh, and it's there really to rubber, its purpose is to rubber stamp what our intelligence bureaucracy wants to do, and, uh, and that is in fact its effect. I forget the numbers, but it's something like out of 30,000 government requests uh, to conduct bulk surveillance, maybe 11 have been rejected, or so it's like a 0.003% <laughs> rejection level. And even those have then, they've come back and they've, I don't know, dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and, and those things got through. So yeah, there's not, a lot of, um, there's not a lot of judicial pushback on any of this that I'm aware of. All right, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, I know a lot of people here are obviously big fans of, of yours and your previous books, and I, I have a whole stack of questions here asking about when the next John Rain book will be coming out. So. Sorry about that. I got a little political <laughs> there, didn't I? I did a signing at Kepler's bookstore in Menlo Park last night, and I was trying so hard not to be political. Just talk about the book, and here I seem to have gone in the other direction, so apologies. Sorry, sorry that's, to. I think that's my fault. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, uh, I, I, as you can tell, I'm kind of into the political stuff, too. So whoever asked the question, thank you. John Rain is my half Japanese, half American uh, assassin whose specialty is making it look like natural causes. There have been eight Rain books. 
uh, including my previous book, Graveyard of Memories, which was a prequel. I really love that book. I mean, I do love all my books, but, um, but I really love Graveyard of Memories. <laughs> um, you will definitely see more rain. And in fact, there's a book I'm almost done with that I'm working on right now. It's due at the end of March. It's awesome. I love this book so much, and I'm, I could talk about it, but what's the point? Because it's not even out yet. But as soon as I'm done with this one, which is another standalone, the next book is another rain prequel that takes place about 10 years after the events of Graveyard of Memories. Um, and so a, a related question on that, because again, there are a lot of John Rain fans here, which is not, not surprising and certainly a it's good nice thing. nice to hear. Um, they're just asking, so what drove you to create that character in the first place? Um, I was living in Tokyo in 1993, and uh, it was an electrifying experience for me. I was training in judo at a place called the Kodokan, which is the birthplace of modern judo. It's, it's judo mecca. I mean, if you're into judo, even if you don't make it to the Kodokan, you want to make it to the Kodokan. Everybody wants to at least have trained at the Kodokan. Yeah, you're, you're, you're not, you know, okay, so what a place. Um, so I was just, it was like a dream come true to train there. And uh, I was really into Tokyo. It's still my favorite city on earth. Respect to San Francisco. I did, this is my second favorite city, but honestly, Tokyo, <laughs> there's just something about it. I love it. I'm glad to live here. But Tokyo just, was just uh, electrifying to me. I, I, can't, I can't say why exactly, but the first time I went there, it was like metropolitan love at first sight. And uh, my wife and I had made all these friends, really interesting people, some expats, some Japanese, and uh, they were taking us to these jazz clubs that called live houses at Aibohausu, training at the Kodokan, as I said, all these great whiskey bars and coffee places. And uh, during all of this, an idea came, was really an image that came to me of two men following another man down the street in a part of uh, Tokyo called Shibuya. The street is called Dogenzaka for anyone who knows the city. And uh, I wasn't even there at the time. I was actually on my way to work. I was a lawyer at the time. But it was a really vivid image, these two men following another man down the street. And I started asking myself questions uh, about that image, like, well, who are these guys? Why are the two, well, who are these two men who are following the other man? Why are they following them? Uh, what did they do? And then I realized, they're assassins. They're going to kill him. Which, if you think about it, is a little bit of a strange, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of an inkblot test question. But that was my answer. They weren't going to help him. You know. He didn't drop his wallet. And they're like, sir, sir, you lost you. They're going to kill him. But then the answers just led to more questions. Like, okay, but why? Who, what did he do? Who hired them? How did they become assassins? How do you become an assassin? Um, and I started writing it thinking it felt like a story, which it did. And, uh, well, eight years later, the story <laughs> was a novel, and I sold the rights, and that's, that's how it all got rolling. Um, and and uh, one more John Rain question. As yeah. I said, we got a lot, and I'm not going to read them all. But um, someone was asking, I know this question has come up a bunch as well in, in other venues. Um, there was talk, at least, that... Um, there was going to be a series, uh, potentially with Keanu Reeves. Yeah. So someone was asking kind of what is the status of that, if anything. Right. So the, the Keanu Reeves television series. Well, um, it's hard to say. Uh, I've been through the whole somebody buys your rights and tries to set something up, movie, television, whatever, a few times now, more than a few. And it can be really exciting, but I think the, the best advice I can give for any writer who winds up in this position is try not to get too excited until you've actually made the popcorn, you're sitting down with the remote control and it's, you know, it's nine o'clock Sunday night or whatever. But, uh, so I don't, will it happen? I don't know. Um, it's been a lot of fun. This one's been the most fun and exciting for me of all of them because yeah, Keanu is attached. Um, I've gotten to meet him a few times. You want to hear a couple Keanu stories? I don't know if we got any fans in yes. the audience. Okay. 
I think he's awesome. So, and I've always wanted Keanu to play John Rain. Um, from, for, people always ask at book signings. So from the early days, like 14, I did my, uh, the launch signing was at Kepler's last night, and I realized, wow, um, this is my 11th launch signing at Kepler's. And the first one was in 2002. It's been 14 years. It's crazy. Last night when I read a passage, I had reading glasses. <laughs> it wasn't like that. <laughs> wasn't like that 14 years ago. So anyway, um, uh, so people have always been asking me since the earliest signings, you know, who would you like to see play John Rain if it were to happen? And Keanu's always been on my short list. So anyway, um, about a year and a half ago, um, a mutual acquaintance who's in Hollywood said, hey, I gave Keanu your books. He really likes them and he'd like to meet you. So I said, no, nah, I'm way too busy. <laughs> I said, yeah, sure. So, um, so uh, the night before I drove down to LA, I'm sitting at the kitchen table with my wife and daughter, and I'm like, well, how do I do this? I don't really, you know, I never really met a movie star before. And it's, I, I'm trying to imagine these things, and I thought, correctly as it turned out, I was right about this. I'm like, I, can, I think it might be a little weird because I've been watching this guy's movies for like 25 years. I mean, all the way back to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So I sort of feel like I know him. That's how it is with a celebrity, right? You feel like you know the person, but you don't. You definitely don't. And I feel like it must be kind of weird when you meet that person feeling like you know them, even though you don't. And then you don't know what to say. Like if you just meet someone at a party, then it might be like uh, someone might say, oh, this is, um, this is Mike Masnick. He runs a fantastic blog and company, Tech Dirt, and does all kinds of internet security issues and uh, intellectual property issues. Oh, that sounds very interesting. How'd you get into that? <laughs> but it's just different when you feel like you already know this person, right? So I was trying to get ready for that just to think about it. Be like, uh, so anyway, my daughter Emma says, she says, well, daddy, I don't think you should bring up Bill and Ted. And I said, <laughs> I said, why is that, baby? She says, well, because, you know, we, she loves that movie. It's just a great movie. It's really held up, too, by the way. Um, but she says, you know, it really put Keanu on the map, but, um, but he plays kind of a dumb guy in it. Good heart, but, you know, not the best head. And maybe he doesn't like being associated with it that much because he played kind of this airhead character. And I said, that's a good point. All right, thank you. Good advice. Good advice. So then I drive down to L.A. and walking across the studio parking lot, park my car, walk across the parking lot. And there's uh, Keanu Reeves outside having a cigarette. I'm like, okay, that's Keanu Reeves. This is surreal. So I walk up to him, and he sees me coming, and he goes, Mr. Eisler. That's <laughs> <laughs> a very, very good uh, Keanu so Reeves said, impression. Mr. Reeves. And I had just watched his movie, Man of Tai Chi, which is his first uh, directorial effort. Good movie. Um, I'd watched it, because again, I'm thinking, like, I want to have something to talk about. I want to say, hey, man, I saw Man of Tai Chi. So I watched it. And he says... Um, just finished your second book. Really liked it. And I said, thank you. I just finished watching Man of Tai Chi. And I'm feeling a little nervous, you know. So I said, I just finished watching Man of Tai Chi, which in my house we call Motsi because we like acronyms. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, and, uh, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I got this sense, understandable, under, that understandably he thought I was blowing smoke or something. Because, you know, people just do that. I mean, I, I, I'm on the, um, the wrong end of that to a fraction of what he must be. Like people come up to you and they're like, hey man, I love your books. And they don't say anything else. And I'm like, oh, maybe you did, but it doesn't sound like you're, you, know, you don't know them very well. Anyway, so he's like, <laughs> he goes, uh, uh, well, thank you. I think it's a beautiful movie with a really beautiful theme. And to show him that I'd actually seen the movie, I said, yeah, um, that the modern and traditional can coexist and want, the lone individual can have an impact on a whole system. And he goes, yeah. Like, you're surprised, <laughs> like, 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 wow, this guy actually did see the movie. And then now, because I'm just nervous and shit, I said, I said, you know, it occurs to me you like movies with themes in them. These days, it's um, 
the modern and traditional can coexist and one man can affect a whole system. Back in the day, it was be excellent to each other. And I'm like, <laughs> I could feel my daughter going, ah, you know, don't do this. But he, he laughed and he thought that was, uh, he seemed to enjoy that. So um, anyway, I think he'd make a great John Rain. Uh, I was out in Tokyo with him and some other people who were involved in trying to set it up. For five days about a year ago, it was really fun. My job was to show them all John Rain's Tokyo. And as I mentioned, I, not only do I love Tokyo, but uh, for research purposes only, I do have a habit of going back there when I'm writing a new Rain book and seeking out the best whiskey bars and coffee places <laughs> and jazz clubs so I can get the accuracy uh, level as high as I like to. And while we were out there, I mean, that was my job. I'm like, well, this, this place, this place. Um, it was a really fun week. Is it going to come to anything? You know, let's hope. But even if it doesn't, then it's, uh, it's still been a fun ride. Yeah, it's a good story, too. <laughs> it's worth it just for the story. Um, so, again, sort of a little shift. You know, you mentioned before, earlier in this conversation, that, you know, one of the things that you did was, you know, you had gone sort of the traditional publishing route, and then you switched to self-publishing, and that was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Obviously, you've been very, very successful, and you had, you know, as has been talked about, you had opportunities to stay within kind of the big traditional publishing system, and yet you chose to effectively strike out on your own. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of what made you decide to do that, you know, and where it first became news was apparently you turned down a very large publishing deal that was put in front of you yeah. and said, I can do better on my own. Yeah. And what, what brought you to that decision? Um, so this one, I'll, I'll, before I forget, for anyone who really wants to go deep on this, go to my website, barryeisler.com, and you'll see a link called, well, for writers, and then there's another called resources for indie writers. And there's a ton of information there because it's a big topic. But... The, the Reader's Digest version really is just this. Um, it used to be that the only way to reach a mass market of readers as an author was through a legacy publisher, uh, to find a paper distribution partner, and that was, that was it. That was the only game in town. Um, generally, what, what we now call the Big Five, the New York Big Five, or a smaller publisher, but that was it. Um, digital book distribution, e-books, has changed all of that. And now, as writers, we have... Three broad choices, you could argue it's four, but, but three broad choices. You can go the legacy route, it's tried and true, it's still here, it still works. You can go self-publishing, which means you keep a lot more per unit. It's, a more, it's more a, a digital distribution, an online play, than it is a brick and mortar paper play. But um, you keep a lot more per copy, and it is absolutely empirically proven to be a viable way of making a living as a writer. There are thousands of writers who are making real money self-publishing. They didn't come out of the legacy world. They're, um, they're self-publishing pure plays. So it's totally viable and it's great. Uh, and another way of doing it is Amazon publishing. A lot of people don't know. They think of Amazon publishing as self-publishing. Amazon did establish a self-publishing platform, Kindle Direct Publishing, KDP, and that's that's the Amazon self-publishing thing, KDP. But Amazon also set up a more traditional publishing operation where, you have to, where if they like your book and they want to publish it, then you, maybe you'll, um, they'll make you an offer, sign a contract, they'll pay you in advance, and your per-unit royalties will not be as high as if you self-published. That option, to, to me, is a kind of hybrid <clears throat> between the legacy route and self-publishing. And again, we could, I, I could talk about this stuff until probably everyone would be like, Checking their watches and stuff. But the, the biggest thing for me is this. Um, the revolution in publishing is now being driven by choice. Writers have choices now where before we really didn't have any. And for me, that's incredibly exciting. And, uh, and based on my own circumstances, 
uh, f- I don't know, four or five years ago when, uh, yeah, there was a nice, um, healthy six-figure, two-book deal that had been offered to me. Uh, I just ran my numbers and I decided that I could do better if I self-published the next book. That um, by making four times as much per unit in digital, I would wind up making more money. It's, it's more complicated than that. There's more to it. It wasn't just the money. Um, I mentioned I like to be in charge. It's part of my problem with the CIA. They wouldn't put me in charge of the place. I mean, I would have been pretty good. I was 26 years old. I was pretty seasoned. You know? <laughs> Nobody was listening to me. Crazy. Anyway, so I like to be in charge and I don't, it's uncomfortable for me to delegate uh, critical business decisions. If I do, the people who are going to be in charge of those decisions due to the delegation have to be ruthlessly squared away, which is not a phrase most people would associate with any New York publisher. So I wanted to be in charge of all the business decisions. um, And also with self-publishing, you get much faster time to market. That was important to me too. But there's no one size fits all. There's no uh, uh, answer that's going to be right for everyone. You have to ask yourself a lot of different questions. And if you're curious about this sort of stuff and you're trying to decide for yourself, what publishing route makes the most sense for me, go to my website. There's really a lot of good information there. It goes pretty broad and deep and, uh, and could be more helpful than just a, this quick overview, I think, could be. <laughs> um, now, related to that, I know that, that um, you know, you've also been very opinionated about, about Amazon. Uh-huh. Um, now, obviously, they're in some way acting as your publisher now. Um, but been a, there's been a lot of debate about, you know, has, is Amazon good for authors or bad for authors? <laughs> right. um, and so I want to get your take on it. I'm, I'm laughing because just last week, this, uh, I've never heard of these guys before. There's some institute in New York called the Winter Institute, I think. I don't know what it is. And in connection with uh, something that used to be called the New America Foundation, now just called New America, they put on a, a conference, and the title was The Amazon Monopoly, A Threat? <laughs> it's so awesome. It's like J. Jonah Jameson from Spider-Man. Spider-Man, menace or threat? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. It's almost like the, mono- the monopoly. Is the monopoly a threat? This is, l- the, if you look up, the, begging the question. This is the example that should be in it. So I got a kick out of it, and their panelists were just the most incestuous group of Amazon derangement syndrome people you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Not only did they have Douglas Preston, who's... He, I'm trying... I don't know what it would be... He's not able to think about these things clearly, which is what happens when we get in the grip of powerful emotions. That's why powerful emotions can be dangerous. They tend to occlude reason. And that's where Doug Preston is on on Amazon and publishing. But it wasn't enough that they brought Doug Preston in here. They actually had to bring his agent, too. So I was laughing about that. I'm like, why don't you just clone the guy? (laughs) Why don't you clone him, and then you could have an extra panelist. Okay, here's my quick and dirty take. In case you haven't been able to guess from some of my remarks about surveillance in the government and uh, the establishment media, I don't like and I don't trust establishments. And uh, the New York publishing establishment is about as self-serving, incestuous, insular as you can imagine. I could go on and on about this, and occasionally I have, even at places like Digital Book World, where I don't think they realized quite who they were inviting to speak. (laughs) Um, Publishing is run like a cartel, not because they're bad people, they're not evil, or at least they're no more evil than anybody else. It's because they're human and subject to all the usual human inducements, incentives, disincentives. There has always been so much product, so many stories, so many books chasing such limited bookshelf space that it's just a massive seller's market. There was never any incentive to comp- there was never any competition. There was never in- any incentive to innovate, uh, to serve authors better, to compete for author services, and 
this all works for the establishment itself, for the club. That's not my word, by the way. They call themselves a club, as revealed in the government's um, uh, subpoenaed documents in which the, the government proved this price-fixing conspiracy on behalf of the New York Big Five and Apple. They think of themselves as a club. That's a nice way of saying cartel. I, I don't mind. I'll give them the, the kinder word. They're a club. And Amazon's entry into publishing, the advent of digital books, the advent of self-publishing and digital book distribution has shaken up that cozy, incestuous, moribund club like nothing ever has. Of course the people in that club don't like it. I don't blame them a bit. They're like a bunch of boxers who are in a club and they've all decided that they're not gonna hit that hard. And, and they're going to outlaw some things like, you know, it's like that left hook. Man, you know, back in the day when people could throw that left hook, that really tagged me. You know, my jaw hurt for days. Let's not do that anymore. You're right. Why do we need to? And, the, and you can win this match and I'll win the next match. And, they, and so you get a kind of kabuki competition. You see two guys get into the ring, but it's all very mapped out and agreed upon how they're going to fight. And then Amazon is a new market entrant. As I see it, they looked at the rule book and they're like, they're not doing all this. They could do all these different things to train. They, why aren't they using uppercuts? The uppercut looks nasty. <laughs> all right. So Amazon trains and then they get in the ring and they're like, boom. And, and the establishment publisher's like, why did you do that? And Amazon's like, you could do it to me too. Come on, come on. You know, that's, it says in the rule book. And that's what's going on. That's the dynamic. And people like Doug Preston can't get it. It's just the way of the world. Um, Publishing was run like Monopoly. It's a quasi-monopoly for a very long time. What happens in monopolies is they get lazy and complacent and out of shape. It's what happens. Why wouldn't they? I would too. How do we know? We're just lazy as humans. How do we know this? Have you ever sat down to watch a television show and then you realize and you're like, oh, damn it, I left the remote by the TV. You're like, honey? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, honey, could you, honey? <laughs> you know, and it's like there, you know? <laughs> but you're too lazy to get up. You just don't want to do it. That's how lazy our species is. But what happens if the house is on fire? <laughs> you're like, you know, beeline to the door. No problem, suddenly not lazy. Competition is like that. So if there's an industry that's completely protected from, from competition, then the culture of that industry will get to the point where it's like, honey, could you? And, um, and yeah, when suddenly when you feel like, wow, somebody's lit a fire under my chair. This is, this is big. This is different. It's very uncomfortable. You don't want to admit that you become lazy and complacent and that you haven't been serving your customers your, or your supplier authors, your readers or authors. You don't want to admit all those things. You want to say, Amazon is evil. Amazon is evil. You know, it interests me. We live in a sophisticated culture, so-called. And people like Doug Preston, hey, Doug, and Scott Turow and some others uh, uh, Richard Russo, James Patterson, who've been leading this crazy anti-Amazon charge. They know in their bones that Amazon is bad. Amazon's a bad thing. They know that. They feel it. <laughs> I just came across this expression. It's like, you know, the, that truth you know in your heart? That's not truth. <laughs> it's something else. Anyway, they know it's bad. And they don't know what to call it, but they know it's bad. And it's business. And what's bad in business? A monopoly's bad, right? A monopoly's a bad thing. So they go, Amazon's a monopoly. That's because we live in a sophisticated culture. If we lived in a more primitive culture, they would reach for words like demons or witchcraft. <laughs> They'd be calling Amazon things like that because witches are bad and demons are bad. But in our sophisticated culture in a business environment, they use words like monopoly, not really knowing what they mean, but knowing that they're bad things. Sorry to go on and on about it, but, <laughs> but I don't like establishments, and I'm no fan of the publishing establishment in particular. And I welcome a new market entrant, including other new market entrants, Apple and Google, who are shaking up this moribund system in ways that I think will ultimately better serve readers and authors. So, so tying some of all of that together, actually, you know, one of the things that's come up within the surveillance debate, even, is you know, the fact that so much of 
um, you know, what came out was really enabled by these technology companies yeah. and platforms and Google and Yahoo and Facebook and all of these guys having so much information. Right. Um, does, and, and Amazon too, I For mean, sure. with, with, oh, yeah. with their web services. I mean, they host a, a oh, huge yeah. percentage of the internet. Um, how much does that aspect worry you? A know, lot. So, uh, in terms of you know, what is the role of the technology companies <clears throat> yeah. within the surveillance? I should probably talk about it more because um, I tend to focus on the government, but the truth is, um, yeah, corporate surveillance, the amount of <clears throat> data that's available to giant international conglomerates is also breathtaking. And the, the most disturbing thing, obviously, is this kind of oligarchical nexus sharing of, um, of information and capabilities in <clears throat> so-called private industry and the government and really working too closely together. What's the solution to that? I don't know, there are probably a lot, but one thing is just public awareness. Because to the, to the extent that Tim Cook is now taking a hard line against uh, the government's insistence on back doors and other um, uh, building in the government capability to break surveillance, <clears throat> that's being driven by his customer base. He recognizes that. I mean, these are companies, right? They're, they're in it for a profit. If we as consumers demand better encryption and these companies recognize that they, they can't just have these cozy incestuous secret relationships with the government to make money, they also have to make consumers happy. There's a better chance that they'll start building uh, into their products better end-to-end -end encryption that will actually protect our privacy. Cool. Um, so here, here's a, a quick one um, that somebody wanted to know, which was uh, asking effectively how much you've plotted out your life in advance and, and uh, saying, did you happen to join the CIA uh, <laughs> to serve in that role with the idea of kind of, you know, turning your life into a John Grisham kind of thing where you would then take that information and yeah. become this uh, massively successful novelist? It would, isn't it pretty to think so? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to take credit for that kind of foresight. Um, I never, I didn't really figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up until I was about 40. <clears throat> so I bounced around a lot and in retrospect it can seem like it was fairly carefully planned because so much of, so many of the experiences I've had wind up going into my books. But I think there's a name for this logical fallacy. It's called like the, like the reverse bullseye logical fallacy or something. It's like if I shoot an arrow at the wall and then I go out and draw a bullseye around it. And that's kind of what's going on here. I mean, just naturally, uh, my experiences inform my novels, right? So it seems like, <laughs> you slick bastard. <laughs> you know? It's like setting that novel in New Jersey. Did you pick New Jersey? I was, well, no, my parents, you know, they had me there. <laughs> you know? but, so it, it can really seem like that. I'd like to take credit for that kind of foresight. Uh, the truth is I feel really, really fortunate because until I started writing full-time, until I got published and started doing what I do now, uh, I always felt a little bit like I was living someone else's life and not in a super objectionable way. I mean, my life was pretty good, I think, by, I don't know, historical standards. I was a pretty good lawyer. I enjoyed various aspects of it, but I never felt like it was really me. And I used to sort of joke with my wife and I'd say, I feel like a traveler, uh, philosopher, writer trapped in a lawyer's body. And I did kind of feel that way. So I feel very fortunate that I wound up, that I was stuck with the writing and I wound up getting published um, and was able to use all these experiences I'd had in places I'd been. But yeah, it really wasn't planned. 
Well, that's that's a less exciting story than <laughs> I know, I know. to have, have plotted it all out. It wasn't out. quite as diabolical. Yeah, as yeah. Well, that's disappointing, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> we, we, we've, we've reached the point in our program where we have time for one last question. Uh, and I will t- I'll go to the audience once again because they submitted lots of wonderful questions, so thank you very much. Um, and it says here that, that uh, I also read the New York Times, the Atlantic, the New Republic, etc. cetera. Uh, what else should I be reading to get the truth or at least different perspectives? And I think that's... Tech dirt! I, I, I did not write this question, but I, I'll, I'll take the, the perfect setup. Uh, this is really uh, this is not a quid pro quo. Seriously, tech dirt is awesome. And, uh, and Mike's columns in particular are, I'm sorry, it's just true. I'm going to talk about you as though you're not here. They're so smart. They're so well-informed. They're so insightful and they're so well-written. Really, really a great spot. So tech dirt for any of these issues we've been talking about, surveillance and privacy, these sorts of things, and, and some others. Um, <clears throat> but in particular, surveillance, privacy, great, great website. And then, God, off the top of my head, I'm a big fan of The Intercept. I've been reading Glenn Greenwald religiously now since he was, I think since I discovered him, he was with, with unclaimed territory before even Salon. So it's been a while. I think Glenn is terrific. And he, Jeremy, and Laura have put together a fantastic team of really smart, interesting people covering topics that I think are critically important for America and the world over at theintercept.com. So that would be another one. The Intercept actually figures in the new book. Uh, one of the characters is a reporter for The Intercept. So that would be another one. And uh, now I feel like I'm going to... And Shadowproof is great. Um, what else do I, I... I get a lot of my news from Twitter from following people rather than so much like, like uh, institutions that I like. And then those people will either link to something they wrote or, or something that they think is interesting and worthwhile. And I'll follow it that way. And what happens is... I hadn't thought about this before, but it's interesting. It's almost like when I was a kid and you buy an album then you could see everything in front of you and you'd rapidly get to know the names of the songs and everything. But with MP3, I don't know, it doesn't seem to work that way. I'll know the music, but I never really know what song is playing. <laughs> and it's kind of like that with the way I get my news. But yeah, off the top of my head, Shadowproof, The Intercept, Tech Dirt, Marcy Wheeler's fantastic, EmptyWheel.com. I mean, she's, um, she's awesome, yeah. Yeah, yeah, incredible. I feel like I'm leaving a lot of people out, and if you're listening, I apologize. Because <laughs> I, I, hey, you know where you can find more? The 18-page bibliography I mentioned earlier. That's got a ton of great stuff in there. guy named Jay Rosen, media professor at NYU, really, really smart, um, insightful guy. And so anyway, that's um, a lot you can find in the back of my uh, book, The God's Eye View. Great. Well, uh, we'd like to extend our thanks to Barry Eisler, once again, a former covert CIA <laughs> operative, attorney and Silicon Valley startup executive, and the author of many best-selling thriller novels, including his latest, The Wonderful The God's Eye View, which if you have not purchased yet, you are mandated to make sure you do it before you leave this building. I am Mike Masnick, and now... I'm supposed to grab this. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.